Good morning. Welcome. This is uh this podcast is turning into the uh twice a year conversation with Ben, which is fine by me. I really have no particular have you had any vision. Other guests since the last time we talked? No. Oh. I haven't done an episode. I actually thought about doing an episode a few weeks ago. Just I actually so you've style. done a few, just you. Right, just That Jamie was the talking. majority of the early ones. I I have to say I don't mind those. I enjoy them. They definitely require energy a little bit of prep like it's Mm -hmm. mostly free will and i don't like edit but i do want to think through things fairly thoroughly initially i i feel like in a conversation meandering and figuring out works when you're just monologuing although i certainly don't like type it all up i i want to pretty clearly know where i'm headed i feel like figuring it out as a monologue is way more boring i don't know (laughs) That's my take. So yeah. it definitely takes a little bit more just like energy and work. And so when I'm busy, it just doesn't work. But uh, speaking of being busy, we're both in law school. Mm-hmm. That'll probably be a chunk of our conversation is kind of like how law school is going. But let's let's actually start with a couple of the topics you had mentioned. Mm. Uh, your choice. Do you remember any of them? Uh, one of the, I was just I was just pondering this question. So. And did you see the uh, the we're going in deep real quick here the satanic uh, uh, altar that was set up in the Iowa State House this week? No, you would know I'm if familiar. you if you saw. Like, okay. I don't recall. Did I? Uh, so yeah, they have a process for like an approval process for organizations to place you know displays in their sure. state house. Like you know, it's it's not like at the center of the rotunda, you know, but there's a spot. And they, it's probably a rotating basis, like a two, it's a two-week sure. display. And so recently the satanic whatever organization um, sponsored by the National Atheists. I was going to say, it sounds more like a troll uh, than something yes. bad. Yes. Yeah. So they, you know, they went through the process. They had, there was, there was one tweak that had to change their plan to get approval, which was they couldn't use a real goat's head. They had to use a, you know, synthetic goat's head. And so anyway, they set it up and, you know, major outcry. It's Iowa. It's not Satanist country, Satanist country. Sure. Um, and, but one of their, one of the rep, rep um, representatives, Dunwell, John Dunwell, he's a pastor. He's a you know, state rep, but he, I saw his post on, on X about it and I read it and I thought I, I like that resounds with me. He basically said, he's, you know, he said, I have a couple hats here. I have the, I'm a, I'm a state representative. I'm a believer. I'm a pastor. He's like, so let me explain how I think about this in each of those boxes. Okay. But on the state rep side, basically he was like, let's go back to the constitution. Is, is, is our approach to this constitutional? If so, then we, we actually want to protect the rights of others, uh, rights of expression, right? You know, sure. It's, it's free religion, speech. Free speech. Free just, just, it touches on a few things, uh, and we can simultaneously uh, uh, label as you know abhorrent and evil. And or you can use your own speech and response. Yeah. You can what was that? Use you your can, own speech right. and response. Exercise your freedom of speech to respond to. Someone else's freedom of speech. By the way, and I just keep pulling away from the mic, so I'm not like in the mic. <laughs> Got it. Yes. Uh, this could be a video podcast, you know. Nah, that'd be way too much work. <laughs> you'd have to clean. I mean, you're the video guy. You have to clean but... your office. We'd have to get yeah, cameras. Yeah, exactly. 
Uh, Wait, anyway. continue with this guy's post. Oh, so, you know, that was the first, was from a sort of constitutional state yeah, they elected have free official. Speech. We have free speech. We have free speech. You don't have to like it, but part of our job is to protect the speech of those who whose speech we we really don't like. We yeah. stand against. And our ability to stand against it is kind of something we also want to protect. And so let's let's do that. So and then the, you know, the the pastor slash believer approach was um, you know, his first response kind of similar to yours was this thing don't don't this thing doesn't have power over you. You know, you you don't have to you don't have to melt uh because someone put uh you know a satanic what did I say altar in the right. state house. But let's respond let's respond as Christians. So you know he helped organize a, a prayer meeting. They had a nativity so they met at the nativity. Like hundreds of people came. Yeah. Um now this guy was torn apart in the media on 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 X from people who were saying no the Christian thing to do is to come in and tear this thing down and then change the rules so this can never happen again. And and actually, I think it was yesterday, day before yesterday, a an Iowan a man, probably in his 30s, former military Christian guy, came in and did that. He just smashed it. And so... <laughs> he's going to get in trouble. Yeah, he was arrested. That's too bad. Arrested. Um, but he, he's... This guy who who vandalized, justified or not, uh, is the hero in the story. Sure. And, um, and certainly to some extent, I think actions like that can be part of civil mm-hmm, disobedience. Mm-hmm. You know, you destroy it and then say, arrest me. I'll take right. the consequences. I'll take the consequences. I, yep. I, 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 I weighed the, you know. Right. That can be powerful. Like, I, I get it. Potentially yeah. he's a good guy. I don't know. So part of me, um, part of me agrees with both approaches. Sure. Uh, and some of it might depend on what hat you're wearing and what your what your role is. But right, um, I would and be... also the actual context. I, I don't know. It's yeah. possible there's like a powerful movement of like like explicitly like demon loving like pagans in Iowa, and somebody needs to take a stand. Yeah, both let's pray and also let's like stand up and declare truth. My suspicion hearing this is that it's just somebody trolling. Yep. And like, sorry, I'm not going to get arrested in civil disobedience because of somebody's troll. <laughs> like, I'm like, just ignore it. Especially when it's a two week troll. Yeah. That, that's my suspicion. Yeah. But I don't actually know the context. So I, I can't. There's more to it. And I make a I don't know. I don't know all the context yeah. either. That's that is my highly educated in half my, hour on X. So I have met real pagans over mm-hmm. the years. Um like even this not just Democrats, I, I, I real, bought, real pagans. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Why I said bot. I met. I bumped into. That's what I was going okay. for. I bumped into a guy at SUNY Potsdam. We had an interesting conversation, and he said he's a pagan, okay. and I explored that a little bit, and it basically meant he like has fun with tarot cards. I mm. uh, I think that's stupid and foolish, and probably is opening him up to like demonic oppression. But he's not like some sort of. I don't even know if he really. It's more like uh, it's more like astrology, which yeah. is stupid and and certainly can open you up to like demonic like sure. demons are real. Um, but I, I guess I would differentiate that from somebody who's like praying and worshiping, praying to and worshiping Satan and like right. trying to like move by the power of like by demonic power. Yeah. That's pretty different than somebody who's just being stupid. Being stupid's stupid, mm-hmm. by the way. But. Uh, and dangerous. I, do you know what I mean? I would you. differentiate. Yeah, I know. And, what, and what I've also so I've met like 
various kinds of genuine pagans. I've also encountered several people who will call themselves Satanists, and I think they're basically just atheists who are trolling Christians. Mm-hmm. The The extent of their Satanism is to, like, be provocative and get attention and annoy people. Yeah. So yeah. the... Uh, the only most of the outcry um, uh, about the satanic altar, from what I saw, wasn't um, wasn't a sort of it wasn't argumentative. It was emotional. Sure. Um, it was like, are you kidding me? How can how can this be allowed? Uh, your arguments are disingenuous. You know, you don't really believe that. You're just covering for the devil. You know, those kinds of. Um, the, the, the only kind of cohesive argument I heard was Satanism isn't a real religion. Like it's a, it's a troll, it's a troll, uh, you know, it's, it's atheists trolling Christians. That is and what like, it is oh, sometimes. Well, but, but even if that, okay, take that, take that at full value. Okay. Say it's not a real religion. Does that exclude, does that exclude them from no, their access to right, this, right. this expression, um, that is, you know, codified in the Iowa state house. So I think this leads into one of the topics you had mentioned to discuss and what it is, is I would prefer that not happen. What's that? People put up sure. altars okay. to Satanism. <laughs> I'm glad you clarified. Yes. I was um, confused for a minute. But how do we go about mm-hmm. achieving that goal? Mm-hmm. And, and I think there's, there's an impulse yeah. to say, let's use government to control people. Right. And there's, an impulse that says, let's pray for it. Let's love and serve and bless and preach to. And, and it's, you know, just recently I was listening to an interview, uh, a a Christian podcast, like a a Christian theologian interviewing a guy who calls himself a Christian libertarian. And they were discussing like what libertarianism is. And one element was like comfort with like private citizens being part of solutions to problems rather than the government always being the solution. And, and I think that that gets into a lot of areas. I think even like take something like the uh, war in Ukraine. Like I'm not, I don't think the U S government needs to be involved, but I'm not opposed to private Americans donating, maybe even going over and fighting. Like, mm-hmm. it, like I'm, it, it it feels like often it's should America do something or nothing rather than what can we do as individuals? Um, does that make sense? And, and so like, Absolutely. I'm not sure precisely why there's that impulse. I don't think it's simply a modern American thing. I think there's a tendency for governments to grab power and everybody just to assume like if it's worth doing, the government should do it. I, well, I think it's actually uncommon for people to like say hey government just keep like some basic order and let us be the solution yeah yeah and i don't even i think you can see that principle it scaled down from government just even in like a home like a you know right if if mom does the dishes it's it's really rare to find you know uh it's more rare to see the kids sort of show up and say hey let's 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 start doing the dishes um or whatever, you know, when you were young, did your mom make your bed or did you have to make your bed? At like five, I made my bed, but there like you go. younger five, possibly we'll my five. mom. Okay. I don't know. Like, okay. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it was when one you were, of my chores. Yeah. Yes. Uh, 
it was just one of those things where like it was ingrained in you like this is your responsibility yeah um, but it'd be very strange if you didn't have that reference point so uh, uh yeah that wasn't we're blending we're blending the topics together because another thing that's i've been i've been processing is this idea but applied to the church sure uh, oh i had a question about the the christian libertarian guy was okay. liber- was christian modifying libertarian was it like a different brand of libertarian he was he was ascribing to, ascribing to or is he just saying he's a christian who is a libertarian i think it's the latter although valid you know the order is interesting i'm wary of people who use christian as a modifier for anything yeah i get that yeah well i think he's like i'm a libertarian and like this is like this is an outworking of my faith is the way he would mean it i that makes sense but yes now that now that you observe the order of the two words i understand your question yes it it does he also a christian nationalist there's a loaded term for you right (laughs) So you could say nationalist Christian. Uh, yeah, I, right. I don't think people necessarily think about it too much, but maybe they ought to more. Yes. Uh, wait, wait. So so one of the, the things you had mentioned to discuss, which we're finally getting to. We don't have to follow. Mo- no, I, I, just... I, I am interested okay. in it, though, because uh, I do think it relates to kind of what we just were discussing about mm-hmm. like people being the solution to things is sometimes there's this question of like, and I think this is headed in the right direction, but I still think it's missing something. It's like should the government take care of everybody who needs help or should the church? Mm. And certainly I think the church, uh, the church probably should be much more engaged in uh, just like social support than it is caring for the poor, the handicapped, et cetera, helping with education. Um, I think right now in our context, because of, high taxes and regulations it's a lot easier just to let the government do it Mm -hmm. if there were fewer regulations and fewer taxes we'd be freer and wealthier to help be part of the solution ourselves but i use ourselves as i I do think one of the things you see biblically in the new testament was the church had organized ministries to help people right um very early on there was a a ministry to support widows right like there was very practical meeting Right, there are some challenges needs. early in the book of Acts, and maybe in Acts, is it six, when they choose seven mm-hmm. spirit-filled men to help oversee that ministry? And they, and they weren't they weren't merely marketing camp ploys to, like, it wasn't like you had to be a member of the church. You had to be a widow as a member of the church to get this, you know, access to the soup kitchen. It was a community benefit that was being... Yeah, it was certainly to, to think, love and right? serve. Would, well, I, I would... Well, add, maybe not. So in it's either in First Timothy or Second Timothy... Uh, I should actually find it. Give me a second. So they were doing this and Paul begins giving some, I think it's first Timothy five. Nope. Must. Is there a second Timothy five? We have music, a music overlay here. Yeah. Right. It actually is first Timothy five. I just opened a first Thessalonians five, (laughs) you know, one of those things. So he says this, Support widows who are genuinely in need. Mm -hmm. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness towards their own family first. And in fact, uh, 1 Timothy 5, 8 is a really famous verse. If anyone does not provide for his own family, especially for his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so there's this, yeah, we have an organized ministry to help people, but like, 
we're not here just to feed the world. Mm-hmm. We're here to like help people who have nobody to help yeah. them. And if, if you got some like family, like they should be taking care of you. And so just like, it's this kind of this principle of like, even when it comes to government, it's like, I want less and more local. Mm-hmm. Similarly, even with like, uh, large scale, like public service projects, yeah. it's kind of like, yo, first family should be helping each other. Mm-hmm. Now, if you have no family and some people are just like really stuck in a tough place all alone, they're like true widows, you might say, or true orphans. Mm-hmm. Like, Hey, let's step in and provide some right. sort of program. But it, I don't think the goal is to simply replace the current U S social welfare system with a church run one. It's yep. more like primarily replace the current U.S. social welfare program with people working hard and taking care of themselves and working hard and taking care of their family members. And then, yeah, on those occasions where somebody isn't able to take care of themselves or their family or has no, has no family to take care of them, that's where, like, hey, get your local communities to, to step up, support. So I do think the church I, – well, A, I think the U.S. government – should tax less and regulate less freeing up churches. But it's not like I, my vision is for church to step in and provide trillions of dollars worth of social aid. It's for people to step in and provide trillions of dollars worth of social aid uh, by taking care of their aunt or their whatever. Because that, that capital a aid category isn't, you know, yeah, there are statistics on homelessness and you know hunger but at the end of that statistic is a person in a place who's hungry or who needs somewhere to stay and the close the 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 person closest to them who can help them is the person best situated to help them uh so with a sort of as a um uh, what's the if we could go back in time that would be one thing, but I think if we looking at this pragmatically, like there's a reliance factor. Yes. And there's also a entrenchment factor where we have, um, on one side of the equation, uh, government programs, whether they're, you know, county level, state, federal. I guess global. We have engaged in those two. Um, those are in are, are providing you know mostly money, but from one direction. And then you have the other side is the expectation of that and sort of ordering, ordering life and expectations and decisions on that expectation on that you know aid. So that's our current state, right? We've got trillions of dollars going into you could call it like welfare or aid or charity sure and you have the sort of magnetic expectation of that um how do we step into that dynamic as the church and as individuals who want to play a role and not just saying all right i'm going to either write a check to the red cross or pay my taxes this year (laughs) uh like what's the next what's the what's the incremental step appreciating the fact that this the situation that our are we're in is not the well either the government has handouts or 
you know, people can do it. it. You know what I mean? Like we can't, we're similar to, we talked about the public education system, right? You, you're not just going to turn off the lights and then say, all right, everyone, you, there has to be, and there has to be a both and, and it's maybe, maybe it takes a hundred years to, with a both and approach. The analogy I thought of was say like, say the church, the only commission of the church is to just have a hot dog stand. Just imagine. Okay. That, that's it's quite the mission. Jesus, as he ascends into heaven, says, set up a hot dog stand. And we're like, all right, we're going to do a hot dog stand. So we set it up. We got the best darn hot, dog, hot dogs in town. Sure. <laughs> and then, like, the government's like, well, there people, there's more people that need hot dogs than you guys, you know, can practically serve right now. So we're just going to go ahead and start, uh, you know, the uh, USDA hot dog stand up the road and um, just crank these out. And then over time, like the church stops, it's like, oh, this is kind of futile. So let's let's not worry about the hot. Someone else is meeting this need. Let's not do a hot dog stand. Um, and then a hundred years goes by, and someone's like, oh my gosh, we're supposed to have a hot dog stand. And people are like, that's stupid. There's a giant one up the road. What are you doing? In my mind, that's a little bit like where we are now. Right. Like you want to, you want to, I don't know, help solve homelessness. What are you talking about? Like we have governments to do that. Right. Uh, it's like it's almost like the there's a we've we've been I, I i say programmed not like to be conspiracy theorists that's a different conversation but we've been programmed to when we see a need to not think of ourselves or the institutions we're part of as a solution but to think of the government as a solution sure that's a global thing i mean yeah so i'll, I'll tweak the the analogy slightly so imagine our mission is to serve hot dogs and one way to do that is to have a hot dog stand. Mm. Another way to do it is to make hot dogs for your kids and your grandparents. And and so so I would say one way to like start walking in this. Sorry, I commercialized right. the Great Commission with my hot dog stand. Well, the reason why I want to say this is because I think a big part of the like what can we do right now given this massive social welfare state. And and again, because the fact that like I don't know. 30 to 40% of our income is going towards it without mm-hmm. our control. Like we can't just turn around. I mean, if we had fewer taxes, we would all have way more money to help with this challenge. Sure. Um, but what you can do I'd buy a PS5. is start serving your kids hot dogs or, or in this case, take care of your kids. Well, yeah. Take care of your, your neighbor. neighbor. Well, yeah. take care of your grandparent. Well, like, do you yeah. know what I mean? Like these, these things and, and in some ways I would say, although it's, it's certainly not, great the way it's currently structured in my opinion there are government grants that help with local charity so for example we even have a food pantry Mm -hmm. at the church here um well major location and there's a lot of government grants that help obtain some of those resources food like there's a lot of stuff we spend some money on it but it's mostly volunteer time Mm -hmm. and it's this cool way of local believers being able to engage in this mission (laughs) we're recognizing men the government's taking a lot of our funds, so we don't have the same kind of funds to throw at this. But hey, there's this grant that we can apply for. And to that, we can access we have, those funds. Who knows how many pallets? Then let's of, go ahead and access them. Kathy DeShane said the number. It was something like. Well, it's tons and many tons, tons, tons of, of food, food in a year. And it's hundreds of families a month. Yeah, are, it's it's super awesome. We're actually exciting. in Madrid. We're at. So there was a COVID peak. We, we And then it declined. We just yeah. surpassed the COVID peak. That's awesome. Yeah. It's awesome that we can meet the need. It's it's worrisome that there's such a there is such a need. Uh, 
But so I do want to mention in the last year, I've had the privilege to be uh, involved with at the table for a lot of uh, conversations at the, ca- at the county around how is the local government meeting these needs? And it's, yeah. I've, I've like continually been uh, impressed at the, just the volume of activity, effort uh, being put toward serving our community by our county government. Uh, there's, I mean, the government's a big, big, scary word, but there's like, there's people, there's like, you know, there's hundreds of people who showed up at work this morning thinking, how can I serve our community? That's really cool. There's my budget. I'm trained for this. Let's go. And that's so, that's so exciting. It is. Um, and so I'm like, all right, how, how can we, how can we develop that resource to better meet the needs of our community and not necessarily just say, all right, well, here's the suite of grants that the federal government or the state government thinks we should be focusing on and here's where we can get the most money and then we're going to do what they're asking us to do and somehow make a report that shows that we did what they wanted us to do let's look at our community and then then take those those needs and sort of match them to access to grants volunteer there's there's a lot of volunteer um volunteer work that the county government facilitates right like there's a there's a meal delivery program for the for office of the aging Yep. Like a hundred volunteers who regularly work are delivering meals, like they're they're paying their taxes and then they go get in their own car and bring food to people, yeah, um, which is super exciting. So that's fun to see. So I, and it's not like well the government we need to make the government stop and then all, right. all the nice people can help. No, and like for example, not. there's a guy in the church who's helped with those volunteer deliverings. Yeah, uh, like so there's ways to jump in. There's a there's another like food and clothing shop here in Canton that I've had the opportunity to work with a bunch Mm -hmm. and like just volunteering. And again, it's, there's a lot of grants, but there's like, there are ways to step up now. It's not like our hands are entirely tied. Um, also as much as I, I'm definitely a firm proponent of smaller government and more local government to the extent there is government, I'm not Mm anti-government. And I think there's actually, you can point to a few things in scripture that very much validate a role for government in some of these things. Like, for example, um, well, one classic one is Egypt with the seven years of plenty, the seven years of famine. It's mm-hmm. literally a God strategy to like that tax I'm, heavily during the right. seven years of famine and have the government save for the seven years of plenty right. uh, famine. Uh, I can mix that up. You got me. <laughs> Sorry, everybody. I have a little bit of a lingering cold and I'm foggy. <clears throat> but uh, also just think about the state of Israel. So the state of Israel, it's a little bit complicated because in some ways, Old Testament Israel is somewhat analogous to a church. Mm-hmm. But in other ways, it's actually analogous to a civil state. Um, and so there are multiple tithes, tithes in the Old Testament. There were three different tithes. And one of the tithes was to support the needy um and so you could almost say there was like a you know they're paying a small percentage of their income right just to help the needy there were also some regulations about uh not not harvesting from the corners of their fields by basically if you drop stuff while you're harvesting leave it that way people like ruth can come and scavenge later on uh there were like multiple things built into the civic arrangements 
of Israel Mm -hmm. that wasn't just like, Hey, this is what we do as believers, but like, Hey, this is what we do as a, a national entity to help provide for the alien, for the poor person, et cetera. And so like some, some basic, cause the thing is we don't have fields. Most of us don't have fields nowadays to right. not harvest the corners of, right. or to not pick up the gleaning, but we have paychecks. And, and also like, if our farmers leave corn in the fields, our, you know, modern trespass laws prevent people right. from scavenging. The, the deer will eat it, yeah, but probably I mean, not humans. It, yeah, exactly. So, so what, what's the heart like, of it though? That like that's that's what right. I okay. How do I? But what it is is a it's a civic regulation mm-hmm. that helps provide for those in need. Yeah. And so like I'm not many. So I lean pretty libertarian. Some libertarians go as extreme as like anarchy, and I'm just like I I don't. I mean, hey, if yeah, I've been in some context and you, there's no government, I don't think we like we have to scramble to form some sort of a fish formal state. But I also have no problem with a state. Uh, God uses states throughout scripture. You see, you see states affirmed again in Romans 13. And there's even possibly some role for the state to help mm-hmm. coordinate or make some regulations to care for the poor. So I'm not like anti that. I mm-hmm. just would say make it more local. Mm-hmm. I, it doesn't seem like it makes any sense for Washington, D.C. to be involved in these questions. But the fact that, you know, the St. Lawrence County government's somewhat involved. I'm like, hey, let's do it. If if, yeah. if you somehow can help facilitate some stuff, I'm not opposed per se. Uh, and I love the fact that, you know, you even mentioned, and certainly I know some people engaged in this, but there are probably thousands more people in the county just engaged in helping people than I'm aware of. And yeah. that's pretty awesome. And we don't need, like, the, 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 the encouragement is not that we just better advert, you know, that everyone needs to toot their own horn. Right. Uh, but there certainly is. And boy, is it's so healthy for it's so healthy for individuals and for families to be in giving, engaged yeah. in these. I mean, it really is. It really is a, a more of a blessing than to give than to receive, right? And and so rarely you find do you find people who are struggling with feeling like they don't have value themselves or that they're forgotten, um, but at the same time they're busy with serving others. Usually. Usually those two things don't don't go hand in hand, so it's good yeah. for us to give. So. Yeah, so I'm, I'm so I'm pay like, taxes. I'm and pro. We'll... <laughs> I'm pro churches being more involved in programs like this, mm-hmm. but also like I, I would start with, hey, let's let's us be involved, and I think you even again see that in that passage I just read from First Timothy five, like, yeah, s- support widows, but like, hey, if you're a widow who has like kids, kids support your mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, there's that. Yeah. And so it's not the, to use the analogy, the commission isn't for the church to have a hot dog stand. It's for the church to serve hot dogs. And some of that happens through the hot dog stand, but some of it happens through just serving your kids hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And if you're just jumping into the podcast now, I recommend <laughs> you go back. <laughs> yeah, 20 minutes. Um, any other thoughts on uh, like social welfare and things? No, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's just, it's something I, I want to, I want my heart to be rightly oriented when the topic of social welfare comes up, because I think, uh, you know, the kind of, kind of red-blooded American, even semi-libertarian, right? someone mentions social welfare and they're, it, you bristle. Like oh my gosh no we're 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 teaching people not to work we're giving government handouts right 
and that's the problem with this, you know, and, and it's like, no, okay, there are, yes, there are some things we need to, we need to work on. And, and maybe if there were a magic button, it would be like, let's reduce the federal spending on social welfare by, you know, 90%. I don't know, but I don't want to walk into it with sort of a hard heart. Uh, because the goal is to meet needs and serve people. And I want to be just as ready to, you know, buy a cup of tea for the person outside the coffee shop, you know, yeah. who's cold than, as to talk about some big, you know, multi-billion dollar aid program. Like, I, I, and it's not because it comes down to, the I think the sort of New Testament commission for what you know the church's role on uh, it would be if we were if we were if we didn't have the New Testament and like Jamie was in charge of writing you know the uh, the epistles um, it probably wouldn't be like a foregone conclusion that feeding taking care of the widows would be part of the church's commission you know what I mean like it. Sure. It makes sense, but I wouldn't have thought to put it in there. And so it's, I think it's healthy for us to remind ourselves that that's important and that they'll know us by their, uh, by our love. Um, so anyway. Yeah. Uh, probably for a few reasons. One. So I want to, I want to say this out loud so you can help remind me. I want to talk about the, the politicization of issues and then it like impacting our personal lives poorly. I want to talk about the relative wealth we have in our world today. Oh, there's a third thing. I'm blanking. Did you write it down in Obsidian? I should have. <laughs> no, I'm just talking to you right now. <laughs> uh, well, anyway, let's start with the first one. So you mentioned like even the you know the topic comes up, mm-hmm. and it what can easily happen is rather than thinking about like your friend down the street who needs help because they just like broke their back and they can't work. Instead, we tend to think about the new trillion dollar stimulus package that we're all upset about or mm-hmm. something. And I, I'm not, we need to somehow by the grace of God, be able to, and I think like the, the war in Ukraine is a, a good example. Um, I, I, I have acquaintances who are like super like, Hey, we should send a hundred billion dollars every year. And others who are like, so opposed to that that they then became almost like pro Russia, and I was like, I kind of agree with you on the policy, but I cannot get down with like excusing Putin from invading a sovereign nation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like I don't is what I'm articulating making sense. Yeah, like we're so opposed to the policy of the we U.S. Just, let's run to the other side of the road, Ukraine, that we end up thinking insanely right. about the actual conflict itself. Mm-hmm. And, and and similarly with this, it's it's easy to almost have a cold heart towards people in need because you might rightfully oppose some insanely inefficient spending by D.C. And I'm like, what? So that that sentence you just said actually is probably the most powerful, maybe one of the most powerful arguments uh, that um, that sort of capital D Democrats have with Republicans or, or, or liberals with conservatives. Right. Is, look, I'm, now I'll speak as sort of a, a liberal Democrat today. Look, I'm trying to help meet needs and the government is good at it and that's where the money is. So I'm going to design 
a trillion dollar stimulus package to meet needs and you must have a heart of stone because you hate this you hate this right. approach you must hate people because all we want to do is help you now i'm being charitable and right. reframing but that dynamic of overcorrecting you know criticizing the delivery model to the point that you walk away bitter and missing the point we we need to we need to right. we need to fix that now i will say this on the whole um as of at least like Five or ten years ago, I haven't looked at the numbers recently. Conservatives actually give more to charities than progressives do. Like, I uh, progressives are great about throwing around taxpayer money. Sure. They <laughs> give so more of their about own being money. Generous themselves. Yeah. yeah. So now, also, I think yeah. a lot of those programs have fatal flaws. I, uh, I mean, I, I think what programs like like large large government. Oh yeah, sure. Aid programs or whatever you know. Um, there uh, many of them. Partly because there are fewer and fewer traditional conservatives um, in those rooms and at those tables, the, 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 the details of that program are often riddled with, um, with sort of ulterior motives and other sort of ideological goals that are injected into the, into the program. And... Um, what else am I going to say? Oh, they may just, they may just be, um, you know, uh, they may be well-intentioned, but doomed to fail. Sure. But what I'm saying though, is like, so even though certainly I, I do think sometimes, sadly, I see people allowing the political discussion to affect their hearts too much. Mm the data suggests that conservatives are actually more generous in helping people than progressives are in terms of like, are you familiar with this data? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and so like, I, I want to, as much as we're critiquing a weakness that sometimes can certainly flare up and you especially see it on Twitter. Uh, but even in real life, sometimes I both historically like Christian approach, like has, Christians have founded schools and universities and mm -hmm. hospitals yeah. and even still today. So, so, so I don't want to, uh, yeah, I would just caution us. It's really easy to get caught up in political heatedness and allow that to irrationally influence like the call of God for our heart of love to, to our neighbor. Yeah. And, uh, so we certainly want to be careful of that. In some ways, it's almost like making the same mistake as the progressive, just having a different policy mm -hmm. and thinking that whatever the government does has to be like what I personally do. Mm -hmm. And so if I'm opposed to the government funding Ukraine, then I have to personally be against them. I'm like, no, <laughs> I'm, I totally support Ukraine's right to that's defend why, themselves. And I think we should not send them money. That's why I, I, I chuckle. I've seen, I don't know, four or five instances in the last couple of months where um, Thomas Massey is like the only dissenting Republican vote. Yes. Uh, and you'll be like, oh, he's a, you know, he's a rhino or whatever. I'm like, no, he just is separating the, what I personally think is wise to do and what I want the government to do or the execution 100%. or whatever. It's yeah. usually a detail, but it's important. It's an important detail. Yeah. Uh, so. And I keep bringing up Ukraine because I think it was like a really obvious one over the past yeah, couple yeah. of years in some of like the conservatives in my world. But obviously this applies to everything from social welfare to mm -hmm. whatever issue you want to name. Mm -hmm. um, now, 
regarding social welfare, I also do think that we live in such a part of why many of us probably when when we think about the Bible, we're thinking about like the theology of the gospel and like basic, like uh, you get my gist. Mm -hmm. And and so if we were to write the Bible ourselves, which is a scary notion, (laughs) it would mostly focus on like theology, et cetera. Uh, The world then was like, we are so far from being afraid of starving to death this winter. Mm. It it's kind of mind boggling that that is actually the norm in human acute history is people being on like the edge of dying and like survival being a big goal for most people. Most of the time, it, it just puts us in a different place. Not to say that there aren't people even here, even in our region who are, truly or legitimately fearful of not having heat through the winter or food or whatever. Right. You know. um, but f- most of those situations, the cause isn't, we'd had a bad harvest. That's where I was going to go. Yeah. It's, there's a broken process or a broken, maybe it's a family situation. There is a, there is a sort of a situational circumstance, circumstance yeah. leading to this desperate. Right. Cause there's need. like a huge homelessness problem in the U S today. Yeah. But that problem isn't, for the most part, and again, I'm sure there's some example of this, but when you're talking about the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of homeless people in the United States, most of them are not homeless and starving because there aren't places where they could live and get food and get jobs. It's because they're like, dude, mind blowing a year. It'll be two years ago. This like February. Mm -hmm. So like a year and a half ago, a couple years ago now. Uh, bumped into a guy here in Canton, homeless, February. So I put him up in a hotel for the night and then chatting with him. You know, you don't have to do that. The county has a program for that. I, it was a weekend. I, I'm, I'm just kidding. But I, it's true. I actually, I would, I'm glad I've done that did. a couple times this year. I would say, yeah, a few times a year, I yeah. put somebody up in a hotel but for the night. That's a perfect example of taking the initiative, being part of a solution. Yeah. And you don't have to advertise it on a podcast. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> sure, whatever. I know. So, anywho, but, but I was, I, I was helping the guy and connecting with him and turns out he was in a, a rehab program with a bed, three meals a day, support groups. Mm -hmm. And he left because it was boring and he chose to go back to meth and homelessness in a North country winter over a rehab, like a halfway house. And I'm like, I'm I'm happy to put you up in a hotel tonight so you don't freeze to death. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if I can really help you. Mm-hmm. Like if you don't want help, I can't just throw 100 bucks a day. Like I don't have that much money. Like you know like you left a perfectly healthy situation cuz it was boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't, and, and so at least that's that's the reason he provided or that's that the he, reason he provided. He, I and my suspicion is partly he left to go back to meth. Yeah. Um, and, and, but, but my point is, yeah, we live in this like moment of like relative prosperity mm. to the point where most people aren't worrying about how to survive except for a group that are there primarily of their own choosing. And so it, it does make, um, I, I don't think it like changes everything about the conversation, but it definitely, I, I think it would have been more present as like a, whoa, a lot of like, 
really healthy, hardworking people are like on the borderline of starving to death, like let's help them mm-hmm. versus it is a little bit of a different context. And again, I'm not saying everybody on social welfare, plenty of people on social welfare are working hard and doing well, yeah. but there is like a homelessness crisis in the United States, including, like I said, I bump into homeless people in Canton once mm-hmm. in a while, but like it, it is kind of like, Hey, even if I had all the resources to help you, I don't know exactly. Like you need Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> like, I. Uh, what do you know? <laughs> and uh, yeah, that, that's challenging. And, you know, we, we send down teams to NISOM, just sent down another team this past weekend. <clears throat> so this is a... NISOM, by the uh, way, is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a ministry in New York City primarily to help feed and clothe homeless people and pray for them and preach the gospel. Do you need to refill your tea? I probably you do. take a five-minute break and rest your voice? Sure, let's do that. This is all linking together very well. It is. And actually, this this we've landed upon the segue to the next, the other topic I, I wanted to talk about, which is... Ooh, yes, intent. Uh, intent let's, and let's agency. Let's come back and talk and so about this is perfect. intent crimes. And we are back. Okay, so Ben, what's this uh, intent crime thing you're interested in? Oh, well, you know, I just, fin- I just finished taking criminal law. True. Which you took last year. I did with Chablani. Chablani. Don't, don't say too much on podcast. How do you do? How do you do? I enjoyed it. I, I learned a lot. Um, how how did you? What was your? What, were, what are your one year on reflections with criminal law? And now you've. Been, I'm, I'm going to turn this into questions. In it is true. I was just doing an internship in criminal law. You got this thing like ground level. Yeah. Actually, let's jump in. I, I want to ask you questions about your, your Although, externship. We move from like the theoretical where you're talking about like inchoate defenses and things like that to like no one uses that terminology in public defense. It's all like, oh, that's an 1192B, <laughs> which was like a kind of drinking like and driving. like to the police radio. You're like, oh, yes. just, uh, yeah. So, yeah, uh, well, well, let's talk about intent first, okay, okay. and then we'll get to like reflections on, on school, because intent so has in- to do with like drug abuse. Yes, it does. Uh, intent, I mean, it's, it's intent is often, very often, a critical element and, and sort of factor in uh, whether something is a crime or particular and by intent, you Degree mean of kind crime. of knowing what you're doing and intent, like wanting to do what you're doing. There are various tests, but pretty much yes. Yes. Knowing what you're doing, knowing what you're doing is wrong, and having the ability to stop doing what you're doing if right. you desire. Right. So having some control over your over your behavior, uh, uh, knowledge of the morality or the rightness. And and sort of a cognitive understanding of what this is, right? Um, so that's and to some intent. degree, this is a useful thing mm-hmm. because uh, it, it really it's the difference between murder two and manslaughter one. Murder two is I killed somebody because I was trying to kill them with no with no self defense rationale. So sure. it's murder. Manslaughter one is I was trying to hurt someone and I killed them. Yeah. And unintentionally. Right. So the intent the intent was to hurt them, but it outcome was outcome is kill the them. same. Outcome is the same. You killed the person both ways, but the the law recognizes there's a you know, what you are intending to do matters. And that might sound kind of like what until you realize what if you weren't even intending to hurt somebody, you were just being stupid. Mm-hmm. You might call that like criminal recklessness, it's a different level of mens rea or guilty mind. You're still guilty of killing the person 
You're not going to walk. You're not going to get out scot free. Correct. Uh, but you may. It may not be just to punish you with the death penalty or life in prison. Right. But that could be like manslaughter too, or yeah. et cetera. Yep. Yeah. So you know that that whole conversation, learning about the sort of terminology and the framework in criminal law. Obviously, it's just a you know the it's just the beat, the tip of the iceberg in that study. Um, I really enjoyed that. And I, oh, and real quickly, because yeah. I we are Christians and think try to think biblically like there's biblical basis for this kind of understanding. Yes, there is. And, and so even Speaking like basic negligence law, yeah, moral law. right around the 10 commandments, you see basic principles about, yeah, if you just like carelessly leave a pit and somebody's ox falls into it, well, you didn't mean to kill their ox, but you still got to make some restitution. Right. There, there's a negligence there. So it like, it understands uh, the, the, the Bible would differentiate between going and, and like destroying someone's property on purpose and like the punitive consequences versus just an accident. And mm-hmm. and so there's, there's a mens rea or intense analysis there. Right. I uh, similarly, like uh, if somebody breaks into your house at night in the Bible, you can kill them. If somebody breaks into your house during the day, you can't kill them unless they're obviously trying to kill you. And, and the, the difference is at night, you don't, know as well you can't see what they're up to you can't see if there are weapons in their hands right but during the day you can't determine what their intent is right but basically the idea is you can't kill somebody for stealing your favorite mug mm-hmm. uh and and so there's so there's a recognition of like your understanding right. of the situation and we have that changes like things. we've we've codified that into burglary like that didn't come out of thin air. Yeah, that's breaking into someone's house at night. Right, it, it has to be a dwelling. It has to be a dwelling where you can't possibly just be the... somebody resides. Yeah, it's a different crime than just other kinds of breaking and right. entering. You're yep. punished more exactly if you, if you break into someone's home versus the garage. So there's some biblical basis for connected. a lot of this rationale. No. Yes. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, even if they're not, no. Anyway, but uh, <laughs> so back to intent, though. Okay, so yeah. uh, there are situations where uh, lack of intent. So say you commit a crime or you, you know, you engage in a behavior uh, and but you you didn't have the requisite intent. Uh, and so sometimes it doesn't matter. Right. But other crimes, intent matters. It, we, we need to know, did you mean for this to happen? And so and just so everybody knows, if it doesn't matter, it's called a strict liability law. <laughs> strict liability. Very few. There, there aren't that many strict liability. That is true. Crimes. Uh and so anyway, uh, if the intent matters to establish one element of this crime, um, it, you can, there are situations where a, a person accused of a crime can argue, hey, I know I f- physically behaved in this manner, but I didn't intend to, I didn't have the intent you're looking for to prove this crime. I didn't know what I was doing or I couldn't help myself. Right. And so one of those could be, I was drunk. Right. I was drunk and yes, I, I, I got in this vehicle and I drove it, but I didn't, I didn't mean to steal it from you. I thought it was mine. I was just too drunk to know. Um, and it would not be just to say, oh, well, thanks for letting us know. You're okay. You didn't have the intent. You're not going to be punished. No. Um, but you won't be, you won't necessarily be punished or, or convicted of grand theft auto. Right. You didn't have the, you didn't intend to, to deprive that person of their property. Right. Um, You'll be you'll be convicted of many other things. Correct. You'll you you know, uh, but that particular crime. So you didn't mean to you 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 took their car, but you didn't criminally steal it, um, or whatever. So that's just an example. Yep. Um, that's. I would assume you're voluntarily drunk. But what if somebody drugged you? Right. You didn't realize it. 
um, there's it's even a different situation. Where Correct. Because essentially, if you get like wasted of your own accord and then do something terrible, although you don't necessarily intend to do the terrible thing, you are reckless mm-hmm. by getting wasted of your own accord. So if, if you're like drunk out of your mind, you can't get convicted for murder too, but you can definitely get convicted for manslaughter too, yep. um, which is more of like a recklessness standard. But yes, if somebody else drugged you, now you, you might be... still get convicted of murder too. If, if you're, you're drunk, drunk out of your mind? mind? Not... Oh, well, because you intend I mean, they could you charge you with to kill it? a person. But did you actually intend to? Like, can you really intend to do much of anything if you're drunk out of your mind? Uh, well, it would be yeah, I mean, it would be arguable. That's what we have. C- certainly, the the, for the DA would charge what what they would do is they, they would charge both. murder two, manslaughter one, and manslaughter two, yeah. and assault and battery, and like and just, they would just charge a bunch of things and see what the jury will can be persuaded of beyond a reasonable doubt. Yeah. Yep. But anyway, taking this back into real life, so your intent matters, um, and. And then we have this whole thing, uh, insanity can be an, a defense, right? Where you, because of some mental uh, disease or disorder, um, you can't be convicted of the crime at all. Sure. Uh, like, it's, it's it's off the table. Now, of course, it doesn't mean someone just is let out. Maybe they're institutionalized. But they are let out once they're no longer once deemed insane. Right. So, so you can potentially be a perfectly normal pers- defendant. But if you can argue successfully temporary insanity, mm-hmm. you could get you could walk out of the courtroom free. Right now, if you're still insane, you'd be uh, locked up in a way. You'd be brought to some sort of uh, hospital for, for your protection and the protection of right. others. But if you're no longer insane, you could walk right. free for a heinous crime. And you don't get to decide that for yourself. There's there's a panel right. and a judge. And um, so here here is my concern. Having learned this framework, yeah, and then observing our our world where we have, um, uh, you know, we we have higher levels of um, mental illness, and I don't say that like pejoratively. But we, you know, we, it's just that's their that's the situation for sure. Thankfully, I think more than ever, there's a readiness to talk about mental illness and to and to uh entertain treatments and and solutions and uh you know it's not like let's let's get this out of the shadows that's good i think i think we're we've moved in the right direction on that front um but unfortunately and i'm not a doctor but but just observing it, it we have like a over medicalization and over uh like we have like a uh, medic- medical a medication response to this, where most of the time, if someone has um, a you know a mental disease or disorder, uh, the first thing that is done is they're put on medication. Sure. Um, now maybe that's required, but maybe that's the only thing that's done. Uh, and I'm not saying it's like necessarily advanced schizophrenia. But something that's maybe much more minor than that, um, maybe it's just anxiety. The response usually is, "Let's get you on some meds, right?" Let's and and again, that might be appropriate. But what is it? What is it part of? What kind of like treatment healing protocol is that part of? Um, so there's that. You look at m- many of the um, a lot of our um, 
people who are who are homeless like you said it's not just they can't find a place to stay or they need you know they need 50 bucks in their wallet to um many 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 like the vast vast majority of those times there's a there's a, a substance abuse or addiction issue and or a mental illness issue that's untreated um or it's treated and the treatment is being abused you know all sorts of sure um and and then so there's then the next layer is societally societally um where there's this idea that a person's um a person's uh in as much as you're a victim of something you are you you lose your agency right so if you are uh if you had a really hard childhood uh your not just your decisions later in life can be understood in context of your hard childhood, but you're relieved of some of your responsibility. It's excused. You're not excused. simply explained. Yeah. You're, you're sort of, well, we'll, we'll give you, we'll, we'll, we'll assume you don't have agency to make your own decisions because of the influences in your childhood, just as an example. And so I'm just seeing multiple fronts here and the thread thinking about it from like a criminal law standpoint is intent right. to me. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, if I, I've I actually heard it was it was just last week there was a there was a situation where it's so tragic I don't know when the incident happened the incident may have happened earlier but I think it was in a high school there was a um, a, a minor a student who was who who um, assaulted another minor I believe another student um, like serious serious assault um, and it was a, some squabble about like a, a Game Boy or something or a Nintendo DS um, the 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 student who did the assaulting um has some level of autism and so the the mother was pleading with sort of the media to say hey please have mercy on him he has autism he has had a tough childhood um he should not be tried for this like this he should not this wasn't even his decision kind of like like he didn't have the agency in this situation um now there is a there is a framework like we just talked about with the legal defense of insanity and other defenses to intent sure. where that could bring you through the process. That could be a, a you know, that defense, uh, you know, the charge could possibly be overcome by that defense. I don't know. I don't know that situation, the details there, but my concern is we're going to see more. We're going to see, see uh, these situations used as defenses um, to, relieve people of criminal liability inappropriately uh, and I'm not sure where to go with that but I want I was wondering what your thoughts are I've talked a bunch but what are your what are your reflections on this yeah. am I making a, a mountain out of a molehill what kind of clarity can we bring to this kind of question I mean I certainly see what you're getting at I, I mean in a lot of these cases I think there's there's probably still uh, it's not too hard to show intent. You know, you mentioned anxiety meds or something. If somebody's on some anxiety meds, it's not like they become unaware of right and wrong. They're probably a little so, more dangerous behind the steering wheel, but they actually would get charged with drunking, dri- driving while ability impaired or something. If sure. they got in a car accident while they're on 
I don't. I can't even name a single anxiety medication. Well, so I'm not much me, of a drug expert. I'll push back on that. Yeah. Just on sort of a theoretical side, anxiety meds like SSRIs for depression, like they're you know sure. It's great. It's they're graded, and I'm not a pharmacist. I'm not a doctor. Um, but the the purpose of these, among many other among other purposes, is to literally alter your mind. It's to alter your your emotions. It's to actually change. It's to change the decisions you make. Or how you feel about certain decisions. Right. And so you can argue that, uh, you know, um, okay, there is a medication that is um, designed to, um, you know, it, it's it's a depression. It's anti, anti antidepressant. But one of the side effects is wanting to kill yourself. It's possible. Like, that exists. Sure. Where it could actually have the opposite effect. Right. But the thing is, it, with an insanity defense... An insanity defense is not the same as saying this person's mentally ill. Um, being mentally ill is not a defense Correct. to an intent crime. Correct. An insanity defense is literally this person didn't know what they were doing mm -hmm. or didn't know what they were doing was right or wrong or they couldn't help themselves. Unless you're in New Hampshire. Uh, you're right. New York which still uses the Durham product test. I, which I don't actually remember what that was. Which just says it is, the, it is the product of their mental disease or... or um, whatever the state which actually might be more like what you're worried about yeah it, it might is be like this now they've i think they've like put some walls up around that right? there's a lot of case yeah, law for yeah, these yeah, things yeah. But, but anyway but typically speaking so even if somebody is uh diagnosed mentally mm -hmm. ill they're on drugs etc if there's evidence that the state can produce mm -hmm. that they did something horrible and they and they knew, knew what, what they were they doing, were doing they and wrong. they knew it was horrible and they didn't have to do it. Then, then there's no insanity defense. Um, now, but we have juries. We do have juries. I, yeah. This, this could go somewhere eventually. Yeah. I, I do think what could happen is the incapacitation and rehabilitation elements of the criminal just, justice system mm -hmm. might just need to be emphasized to help overcome our, cultural tendency towards determinism meaning if you reject free will which i think as an atheist you kind of have to do if you think about it and so as our culture becomes even more and more post-christian even a lot of christians falling into this like it's how somebody was programmed etc like this deterministic type thinking um that doesn't change the fact that somebody might be dangerous and might need help and in yes. fact, I think probably like take this, I don't know about this actual instance with the two students, but let's make a theoretical sure. one. And let's say the kid really did beat up the other kid because he is a messed up kid, whether it's from home environment or something genetic. Mm -hmm. We don't know exactly, but this is the kind of kid who like loses control of himself and beats other people. Yeah. <clears throat> Even if you have great sympathy on he can't help himself which is debatable i don't know the actual details but let's just say a whole jury is like he really can't help himself mm -hmm. i think they can still conclude he needs to be in a place where he can't do this anymore and where he can get help mm -hmm. and uh, by the way for those who are unfamiliar there are several rationales for criminal justice one is punitive which is kind of like this person deserves to be punished these aren't competing rationales Right, these are sort of on a, on a balance. Yeah. Yep. One is punitive. One is, 
or, or, or uh, punitive is not the term that was used in criminal law, was it? Retributive. Retributive, yes. Uh, so one but is retributive. Yeah. Something. Right. Yeah. One is specific deterrence, which means dissuade this person from future crime. One is general deterrence, dissuade others from this crime. Um, there's also incapacitation and rehabilitation. And there's one more. I think that was all of them. That was all of them. Yep. Yes. Uh, and incapacitation means like, like this person is a criming person. Put them in a place where they can't crime or at least not as freely, yeah. i.e. prison, hospital. Uh, rehabilitation is this person is is broken, whether it's just like they're poorly educated, poorly trained, they have mental illness. Let's help the person. And so I, I think you could... If what you're foreseeing becomes like a systemic issue, I think it's possible statutorily to to modify the insanity defense to like allow almost uh, almost uh, like modified charges that are like if you find the person couldn't help it, find this crime which has different set of consequences which might be focused on incapacitation rehabilitation. That might that might be effective. I wonder if another maybe additional approach would be to uh, that's the defense side. Maybe you go from it from sort of the legislative criminalization side, and you if you're say you're say you're working on a you know you're you're updating a statute where one of the elements is is intent. I wonder if you can actually develop a degree of that offense that acknowledges this uh, dynamic and says, but even in this situation, uh, the, you know, the, maybe the sentencing changes or maybe the, that's exactly what I said. Exactly. So, but so you but make a modified version that. of it with a slightly different. Okay. Punishment. Yeah, exactly. So you're, pre- you're, you're, you're preempting the modified insanity defense in the statute. Correct. So literally okay. statutorily Got changing it. it. Perfect. it yeah. Uh-huh. And that way the jury, if they want, can convict of this varied crime variation of the crime that i'd be hesitant to get rid of um intent altogether but i think you could modify it for like various kinds of mental illness or substances the reason i'd be hesitant to get rid of it altogether is one of the really uh encouraging things about when i took tort law i was all of a sudden like dude everybody needs insurance because you can get sued for anything (laughs) when i took crim law i was like you can't accidentally commit a crime for the most part. If it's an accident, there's no intention. And and that's actually really comforting. Now there are a number of I mean you can be reckless, strict you can liability. Be, you can be negligent. Sure, but but like recklessness almost entails like you know this right. could kill someone. If you're acting as a reasonable person, you can't accidentally create uh, commit a crime. Correct. You might accidentally kill someone. But if if you're like kind of like whoa, I didn't know I was doing anything dangerous. Right. I didn't know I was like well, you 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 wouldn't commit an ad uh, malum is it ad, is it ad malum versus ad prohibitum, mm, uh, right? Prohibited prohibitum? prohibited because it's wrong. Yes, and prohibited because it's uh, illegal. Malum prohibitum and wrong. Oh, mal- yeah. malum in se. No, no, no. Oh. Maybe it is. Yeah, I think it is. But uh, yes. continue Basically, on, then I will explain this because it is actually kind of a, a like fun Like murder's bad, 
therefore we make it a crime. Uh, tax fraud is a crime, therefore it's bad. That kind of not 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 really, yeah. but that idea that some things we there is a deeper moral reason right. why this is wrong. So malum prohibitum is it's bad because it's prohibited. Yes. Malum in se so is right. it is bad in itself. Yes, exactly. Yes. yes. Um, yeah. So, so anywho, like intent serves a really useful function, but yeah, I could imagine a, I think, I think you have a valid concern, but it's pretty far from being too realized in our criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. But if it does at some point, yeah, I think we just statutorily create variations mm-hmm. with modified intents and then modified sentencing guidelines that might work. We shall see. We shall see. Yeah. Uh, so tell me about your uh, public defender experience. Yeah. So the last few months, I worked for the public defender's office here in Canton, and it was a great experience. It was well, it was fun for a few reasons. Um, one, it was nice to have a term without classes. <laughs> I enjoy classes, but wow, it was nice. Next semester, I have three, and then a residency. It's going to be epic. That's actually what you did this fall, right? I did. Three classes. Yeah. But, um, excuse me. The, one of the great things was just seeing a case. I didn't see any one case from start to finish, but I saw cases starting Mm -hmm. in the middle and finishing. And it's just nice because like we read a lot of opinions in law school. Uh, when you're in criminal law, you start reading statutes, some, not many, but, uh, you don't necessarily like see wait, what does arraignment look like? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, a bail hearing subsequent? What's a status hearing? Various pretrial motion hearings, the actual motions themselves, the trial process. It was fun to see all that. So, yeah, I got to sit in for a murder trial. My supervisor was the lead defense attorney. Um, I wasn't helping represent the client, but I was able to be part of some conversations just like, How'd that go? What, what kind of like? How, what should we focus on? And that was pretty interesting. I was present with for people's arraignments. I actually was able to stand in front of a judge with a client a couple times and represent them. Uh, yeah. So it was did you a great say experience. you're out of order? This whole court's out of order. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's fun. As a uh, once you finish your first year of law school in New York State, if you work with an attorney who has basically permission from uh, the judicial district you're in a law student can practice law under their supervision. So it's pretty fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was good. I would say I I have no significant interest in practicing criminal law. Uh, watching the, watching the trial, the murder trial, I was thinking being the defense attorney would be very interesting. Being the prosecutor would be very interesting. Being the judge would be very interesting. Being the defendant would be, uh, not interesting. <coughs> That'd be horrible. <laughs> but uh, but what was really interesting to me, most interesting to me, was just thinking about the process generally yeah. and how to make jury selection more efficient and how to communicate instructions more clearly. And like the process is most interesting to me, mm-hmm. which kind of confirmed what I already thought but also continues me in the, I have no clue exactly what God wants to do with me and law. So we'll see. I mean, you could be a judge. Judges get to get to determine a lot of the process. uh, A lot of those elements. That is true. That is true. 
Could work. Although uh, I'm not sure about that. Uh, so you, it was, it was great exposure. You learned a lot in, in terms of the technical process. Yeah. It, it was also um, fun just to think about the criminal defense uh, rationale. Yeah. So within, within the legal profession, generally speaking, criminal defense work is seen as noble. That kind of goes back to John Adams. He defended the British soldiers right after the Boston Massacre. Massacre. He actually, I should have pulled up the entry. I wrote a paper on this last year, and I, I was actually like reading John Adams's journal entries as part of the research. Mm. And he described his acts as gallant and manly <laughs> in defending these soldiers. It was awesome. <laughs> so that's why I named my paper Gallant and Manly, colon, John Adams and defending the, you know. But, uh, yeah, so it's generally seen and as a And it wasn't an exercise in futility. He actually was successful on most of the counts. He was, yes. All of them? I don't know if it was... Uh, I think most. Right. But, now, that um, was all overturned, and they were sent back and retried in Britain, right? Later on. Possibly? I think... I, I no, not, I, I think... Is that really true? Oh, yeah, no. They, well, they, they dismantled the colonial uh, uh, trial system. Mm. Um, yeah. I actually didn't know that part. I just focused on Adam and mm -hmm. Adams and his reflections. But uh, anyway. that is, I didn't know that. Mm -hmm. It was kind of an insult. It basically was like, you know, any autonomy you guys do have, we're taken back. Interesting. Over the sea. But uh, yeah, so it's generally seen as noble. That said, when you actually, when you're pretty obviously guilty, you know, kind of ran and wrong crowds up to no good a lot. It's It's people were arrested for drinking and driving and. Uh, safe bet. Most of them were drinking and driving, but like, so, so you're thinking through this process. I'm not going to speak to any specific case, Thank you. obviously, yes. but yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, any it's, hypothetical needs to not be, uh, you know, re reasonably attributable. Right. To like most of these it's, it's, and so you're like, what are the rationales for criminal defense? Sorry. I... Keep clipping. Hopefully that will fix. I, uh, and so I think there are three great reasons for doing criminal defense. And this is the first one is sometimes the defendants are innocent. And they might look really guilty, but they sometimes need they're innocent of the crime they're being accused of. True. Maybe they're not like the most sympathetic defendant, yes. but they're innocent. Um, secondly, though, even if they're obviously guilty and they really are guilty, <clears throat> One of the best ways to protect the rights of everyone is to protect the rights of obviously guilty people. Why? Because as soon as police can just violate, you know, search rights like Fourth Amendment rights, uh, intimidate people into confessing, et cetera, uh, you know, violating their Fifth Amendment rights, rights to a representation. If they can violate the rights of obviously guilty people, then they can violate the rights of anybody and... Unless you're proven innocent, they're they're like they get off scot they basically get off scot free. They can just violate everybody's rights, and the criminals will get convicted, and the non criminals won't. Mm -hmm. And so, if you want them to not violate your rights, you have to actually have the consequence be that criminals go free mm -hmm. when their rights are violated. Um, so that's the best way to defend everybody's rights. And then, thirdly, even for somebody who's obviously guilty, whose rights haven't been violated, they don't always deserve the full book thrown at them. And so, you know, justice might be working with the prosecutor across the aisle 
to find a, a good plea agreement that's actually just. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's there's a good reasons there. I would I would posit a fourth reason. Okay. Which is, and I, I'm I we've already talked about this before, but I think a uh, a government that has the authority to incarcerate, I mean, basically the power of the sword, right? Incarcerate yeah. to 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 kill death penalty. Um, there is a associated duty to uh, to um, how do I want to frame this? It was, I had it in my head earlier. Basically, we want to vigorous we want to, we don't have vigorous it's the adversarial system right so both sides should have vigorous uh competent representation yeah and uh you know that's why in you know in the discovery process before trial you know you you have that insight into the other side's evidence because we want to make sure that we have the best arguments on the table and the best defenses to the best arguments on the table yeah and if you still win then you have a valid you you valid you've won validly, um, and so uh, you know I was thinking about who is the who's the chess master, is it, um, Magnus Carlson, right? Yeah. So he played this guy who had years again years ago been accused of cheating, but yes, right. Yes. He played was it a year ago and big scandal, big scandal. Yeah, I haven't followed it, but it 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 like. It just took the, it's like a punch in the gut to the guy who won. Like, I think Magnus may have beat him. I don't remember if he beat him or if he lost. The, the guy beat Magnus. Okay. But let's say Magnus won. And then you find out six months later, the guy who lost was cheating anyway. And you're like, it takes, it takes the, it's like running out of post, right? Um, it takes the win out of the, out of the sales of your win. Um, and it also, you, it just, it, it just plants a seed of, of doubt or question in, uh, the party that prevailed. And so I think having a vigorous and good faith adversarial system where the people who are, where the bad guys who everyone agrees like did a bad guy thing and should go to jail for a long time where they have, they have the same type of representation and, um, you know, quote chance at making that argument as, you know, the little old lady whose bag was taken from her on the road. Um, because the outcome, then we'll, we'll, we'll be able to trust the outcome. It's like it's like a tested outcome. Right. So e- even when the person's convicted, it's actually a good thing for the whole system that they had a defense attorney. Exactly. Because it lends credibility to the system. Not saying our criminal justice perfect system is perfect, Mm-mm. but it's actually pr- pretty, pretty legit. It's pretty robust. I'm not inferring that. Our current system today provides right. that in every situation. Right. But it, it Often generally it does. does yep. And that's a great thing. Yeah. Yep. People have, they have a right to counsel in, in their defense and everybody is defended by a lawyer. They're not all great lawyers, but they're decent and it's a lot better than somebody just being hung out to drive by the state. I did learn this year in professional respons- responsibility that in sort of the lawyer's uh ability to withdraw from cases is actually relatively limited yeah once once you're once, once you're representing you're in, somebody you're you're in, you're in. Yeah. uh under narrow circumstances uh if if you're if your client isn't allowing you to you can't withdraw um but one of those is if you're a public defender and you say well, my case look, i have you know i have 300 cases and 30 today and i haven't even read these notes that is not 
enough reason to withdraw from a case. Anyway. Yep. I <laughs> definitely public defenders have a lot of cases. I observe that. And I would say for the most part, they do a great job. Yeah. But it, it they have enough cases that if something kind of novel comes along, they don't necessarily have tons of time yeah. to look into it. And it's not but, like every case is a novel end to end. Most of these cases, it's like a half dozen of the same cases. It's like while I was there, almost all the cases were some sort of drinking and driving or wallability impaired drugs, drug possession cases, domestic violence, child welfare endangerment. Those were like almost all the cases. Yeah. But what? Oh, oh there are also a surprising number of petty larceny, but continue on. You're going to ask a question. Did you observe any, uh, do you have any insights into going back to sort of the determinism questions? Okay. Uh, did you see common, a common thread or threads um, in these sort of criminal situations um did you basically just draw draw any parallels or learn anything about sort of people in general or our or what am i asking here um did you see any what's that i said i do not know good (laughs) do i (laughs) this is why you think about things ahead of time yeah yeah i did you see any common causes or uh Sort of underlying uh, circumstances uh, that were common among the people who were caught up in the criminal justice right, system. Right. Well, I mean, s- substance abuse was part of the majority of these cases. Yeah. Even people in trouble for pedigree larceny or child welfare endangerment, often it was, there was often related to, yeah, just a, a lifestyle of Like substance hard abuse. drugs or... Um, Definitely some. Okay. Alcohol is pretty common, but also, you know, heroin, meth, things like that. Uh, but, I mean, it, yeah, it, it's definitely it. One of the impressions I got from the people who, the attorneys who've been working there for a few years, was many of the new arrests were already people they were familiar with. Okay. So it's repeat. It's it's you might call it. It's almost like a little world. Yeah. And so definitely people get caught up in that world and get stuck there. Stuck in the revolving door. Yeah, which is sad. And you certainly want to see people like that get help. Again, often it's hard to help those people because substance abuse is a big factor. Ah, dude, yeah. One I of the things that in, in our in our crim law class, one of the we had to watch some documentaries and one of them was on um, sort of the the uh, um, it was the prevalence of of mental illness in you know in prisons and even if you you know even even uh, convicts who arrive and they have no history of mental illness the vast majority of them at some point experience which of right. course yeah that, you that's that's a tough situation to be in um, but upon release whether it's parole or early release of some sort or they did their time and now they're out um often often they're the the convicts are are prescribed you know they have a regular prescription of medications that help stabilize their you know emotional and mental states especially in situations where it's parole um they're released and this is like 
location dependent. I don't know what our our you know New York State rules are, but in the in the documentary, they're released with two weeks of supply of medication, and told a you know a part of your parole is to go to a clinic and get this thing get this prescription renewed sure. and stay on your medication, and you stay in touch with your parole officer, and that's how you stay. Um, and the vast vast majority of of those um, convicts who are then rele- who are released on parole fail to do that. And I'm like, if I had two weeks to go find a doctor's office, get in, be seen, and get a prescription for meds, I don't even know if I could pull that off. Like, uh, and they don't have a car. They don't have anywhere to live. Their family situation is often right. a mess. They don't have a job. They don't have any savings. You know, they have like the shoes on their feet, and that's it. Um, and so, uh, th- that revolving door. Th- there are there are clear opportunities where we can help intervene along that revolving door process i think with a lot of people uh not that it's easy and this actually this was the situation this story is what sparked my thought of oh wow this is a place for the church to be involved right how do we how do we help people um because well it, and families i mean most of those people have families and for sure now what is tricky no is, i don't i don't mean like the church necessarily the, insti- right. the, the institution they don't really need to have like but a ministry Christians with a, can a bus. like be part of a movement yeah. i mean like yeah, yeah the christian church what is tricky is and, and certainly this is not every incarcerated person is this person but i actually know somebody who really sadly her brother got out of prison uh, her mom let him come live with her like the kid moved back with his mom and he stabbed his mom to death like mm. a week later like he just yeah and you're kind of like wow maybe don't always let your violent child come back and live with you but then wh- who wh- who else yeah. who else all right it's a tough one right it's a it's a it's a sucky situation yeah so he yeah he got out of prison and murdered his mom the next week and then he's back yep for longer. Yeah, he'll be in prison for life now. But um, it's too bad. So I'm curious to hear more about professional responsibility and constitutional law. But I need another break. All right. BRB. Back a third time. Okay, I can't talk too much more. But uh, as Conlon uh, PR. As the Mayazzi, uh twins on the show Car Talk say. You know what Car Talk? You know, I'm familiar with the existence of the show. Okay. Does it still exist? <laughs> They do reruns. Okay. Uh, the older Tom, I think he he passed away a while ago, but uh, hilarious guys, both MIT grads. By no the way. way, okay. But as they say, welcome to the third half of the show. What's up? <laughs> uh, so, so yeah, you took all the classes you took this fall. I've taken before. Yes. I very much enjoyed professional responsibility. I enjoyed con law. It was you know, slower than I was expecting, although I, I give you a heads up for all these classes, so I'm curious what your take was. Yeah, J- J- Jamie's expectations are, are crushed, and then he aligns mine, and I'm like, hey, it wasn't so bad. You're like, well, it's because I, don't, I don't, don't get your hopes up, or definitely get your hopes up. Uh, I did. I figured out how to get a good chuckle when I was t- talking about professional responsibility. You just call it ethics for lawyers, and everybody laughs. I don't know why. <laughs> um lawyer jokes you want to know my reflections yeah like what were a couple of insights that you found interesting helpful surprising so really so for professional responsibility i mean it's basically a you know an overview of the way 
lawyers are self-regulating in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, lawyers aren't regulated by the government. Um, there's, you know, they're, they're self- like, like physicians, um, you know this, but like, um, what other, in, what other industry or, uh, professions are self-regulating? Uh, that's ma- I ma- many, the, I think the lawyering profession is somewhat unique, in but that. lawyering is it's, it's self-regulating. It's also so intricately tied in with like laws in the judicial system right that you'd think it wouldn't be but it yeah it is and no, so it's, it's it's way less regulated than most professions i think it's it's way less regulated by the government correct it's it's extremely minimally regulated by the government yep. um and so the rationale for that was 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 um was fascinating but so yeah it's it's an overview of, Wait, do you recall the rationale yeah uh oh. hold on the rationale there, I think there I are, could come up with it, but I'm not couple. positive. One of them is, I think, is the political rationale, where basically, um, how do we hold, wh- what is one of the important ways we hold uh, government employees and elected officials res- uh, 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 accountable? Obviously, there's the uh, there's elections, there's a political process. But it's through courts and lawyers. It's through courts and lawyers. Right. And if the lawyers, as a profession, are dependent on the regulatory decisions of the politicians they're supposed to be holding accountable that creates a pretty perverse incentive yeah. p- p- potential for a very 100 percent. I-, I would say that's the big one it's it's similar to the kinds of i would say journalists are very unregulated also by yeah. and large and that's it's a similar rationale it's kind of like there's a difference between the government imposing standards on dentists right because dentists have nothing to do with the government they're just serving keep people, your teeth clean versus journalists lawyers these are uh, these are categories of profession that primarily exist right. to almost be a check on sort of and, professionally and adversarial. engage with the government. Yep. And so if the government were just regulating them. Well, it's the it's the expectation that interests will not will 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 conflict at times. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, one of the things, um, you know, obviously there's like. The the first thing most people think of when they think of lawyering ethics is attorney client privilege, and you know if you tell your lawyer you killed someone, uh, your lawyer isn't obligated to. You know, even if you tell your lawyer you're going to kill someone tomorrow, right. and it's a substantive threat, your lawyer is not obligated. They may they, break confidence then, but they they, don't have they to. are allowed to break confidence under narrow circumstances the situation so there's a couple by the way one other category that's very unregulated by the government for good pastors pastors yeah what's up yeah slightly different rationale but similar minimal regulation but continue sorry another situation uh the the situations i found fascinating were the times where uh, attorneys knowingly violated the the ethical rules established by you know the the lawyers associations right association um because association right yeah they were like i know this violates you know rule 1.4 whatever you know um but i i i it's more important to me that i whatever break confidence or um that was interesting because uh now I'm trying to remember like a particular situation where that happened. Do you recall any? I, I there were a couple cases where, because um, most of the time, 
I'll have to, I didn't remember the case, but anyway, it happens uh, where um, there's, a, gosh, I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up later. Um, but then there's a flip side where the attorney uh, does, there was actually a case, there was a case in Syracuse. I think it was the 70s. Um, there was a, a, a defendant who um, was being charged with murder. I believe it was murder. And in the process of interviews with his attorneys, his two attorneys, he confessed to previous murders. And he and missing the people were missing, young young girl, or, you know, teenage girl, and the did they break area. confidence? They didn't. Oh, the, I, they sh- I don't think they should. No. Well, what he's what he what the what the um, so the lawyers wanted to evaluate whether this defendant was telling the truth. Like, can we trust what he's saying? And so the defendant said, "Yeah, I know. I killed so and so six months ago, and um, this is where I buried her." in outside the cemetery in Syracuse or whatever. Yeah. So they brought the the two attorneys got shovels and they went out and they dug and they found the body. They reburied it. Meanwhile, there's a missing persons case. There's all sorts of investigations on the person that they just found. Families in turmoil. They don't know if she's missing. Oh, this is actually a little more complicated. It's very. Now. This is a really this sticky is complicated because no longer just they found the body because of what he said. But now that they've actually seen the body, that's kind of a separate thing than the privileged communications with him. I don't. How did the How did the case turn out? So they, uh, the attorney. And just so everybody knows, I literally would have read this like a year and a half ago. You did. Right? I just can't remember. <laughs> but you remember the lot. five purposes of you know. Sure. Uh, the rationales well, for you've used them though. I have. So this obscure case, um, they, if I'm remembering right, they reburied the body. They went back to the. I mean, they continued interviewing the defendant. They did not share that information with anyone. Investigate. They didn't do, share it anonymously, um, because in their their rationale was, if we share any portion of this, it will compromise the confidential the confidentiality of our client, right. um, and it will be traced right back, and it will. Right, because if they're like, "Hey, we found this body," the cops are just going to look up who are the hundred people these people represent, and one of them is the killer. Exactly. Yeah. And so now. People are, you know, there there could have been ways, but what they did was they actually broke the law, because it is illegal to if you find a dead body, right? There's statutes that say you have to either inform the police or the coroner or a medical professional. You know, there you you can't just find a dead body and leave. That break that actually breaks the law. Um, and so they and they were aware of that statute. They they broke the rule. So the um, later on it came out that they were aware of this while the case was pending, and that all these details and massive public uproar, right? I mean, they were basically the, the public and the media were like, these guys are monsters. Right. If you don't appreciate they, the value oh, of attorney client privilege, even, you wouldn't understand. They even after finding the body, they actually were be, they met with that young girl's parents because the parents were trying to investigate the case and they were like maybe these lawyers know something and they were being employed or implored by the family to help find their daughter and they already knew the outcome and they didn't share anything right that's crazy uh Dude, there's actually a, there is definitely a tv show episode based on this general premise yeah but i think maybe i think like it was a a, a hostage mm. which is a little different that's and very you different can break that is, but you still don't have you're still to. not compelled, but right. you may. And in the situation, so they, they broke the law, the statute to preserve 
confidence privilege privilege right. um or yeah preserve the confidence conf- it wouldn't, it wouldn't have, been, yeah. the communication would have been privilege but yes um and then it came out public and they were being reviled and basically the lawyers were like yeah no they that's a tough one that's a really tough that is one. A hard one and I, the public was like it's not tough it's clear these guys need to be and so they actually went to court and uh it the question was what what what's supreme here what supersedes is it the law that says you need to report the dead body or is it the confident confidentiality of the client and the decision of that case was the ethical the the ethical obligation uh, is supreme and the attorney has the decision has the discretion to make that choice and so they they did violate they did break the law but they that their defense was basically necessity right um so i had to they had to yep there was a, uh, there was a greater that is good. a hard one though one, once you see the body it, it definitely adds something so it's no longer the person telling you because anything the client tells it. you is privileged communication but if you act on that privileged communication and then discover evidence another way you're now like a witness almost to that other crime you're no longer just the lawyer receiving privilege and that one's tricky i honestly that's a hard one <laughs> Hence, it was a case we read in PR. And there was another case where an attorney, um, a a client told, a defendant told his attorney um, that aside from the current case, that this, this defendant, he had, he had committed another murder years back and that there was an innocent man in prison for that murder, prison for life. And so the attorney, that guy, he, um, he probably broke privilege. Did not break privilege. He did not. He did not. Um, I believe there were there were three. I think there were three attorneys in that firm who knew who knew that, and one, one went to his deathbed and died without telling anyone because because the client was still alive. Um. The agreement they had with the client was if you die, if the client dies, then they we'll can tell. then they can tell. But even even that only that agreement allowed them, permitted them um, to tell uh, because you you can still break privilege after the client dies. It's the attorney dying that ends your obligation because you're dead now. Right. So the first guy died. And I believe the second guy uh, brought it up on his deathbed. And that actually like whatever, 30 something years later was enough to exonerate the man in, in um, who had been incarcerated, and the third guy, um, he was—I think he was sanctioned because it came out that he actually had shared that story as like a party story, like a, like a like he had, he had bragged that he knew of an innocent man who was in prison. And he couldn't tell because of privilege, da, 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 and he had shared that over the years. He didn't actually tell the information, but he shared the story, and I believe he was sanctioned. Uh, violating his duty of no i i feel like though you can break i want to pull up the rules can't you break privilege if someone's basically like uh they have to be imminently as imminent harm and so only certain you call prison harm only certain jurisdictions uh categorize incarceration as imminent bodily harm i would call that i would that's what i argued for i was like no like yeah it's a prison we just studied prisons and have how brutal it is yeah the uh i i think that's the case you shouldn't have to break but i think you, you should may. be able to break if it's and i certainly would. i agree yeah um but it's jurisdictional interesting right now. Well, I and hope so new york is sane. i'm not sure what the new york statute is but yeah. there, there i think one there was one supreme court case but the question was um execution 
And so and that's if obviously you're out of appeals hurt. and the date of the execution, if the date the execution is scheduled and there are no more appeals, then in that short window, then you can then you are permitted to, to break wait, privilege yeah. unless juris, the jurisdiction allows it earlier. And isn't that crazy? So that, that is kind of crazy. I mean, we're going, like, I'm a big fan of privilege and guarding it. But yeah, if if there's you should be able to break in that context. Yeah. But so, so PR, was, I, I found it an interesting class. Uh, a lot of it is just like they actually drill into you the importance of being a competent attorney, mm-hmm. which is kind of intimidating when. So like the first like, and there's motions no... to dismiss I wrote this fall as like, <laughs> dude, this is it. Like. If you fail to preserve certain things, it's out. You can like mess up somebody's There's no case. control Z. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And by preserving, by the way, for those of you who are not familiar, the way the court system works, it actually I don't totally know why it is. I think it's for judicial efficiency. But if the defense attorneys fail to raise certain objections or certain arguments, they cannot raise them later on in the case. And so literally multiple points within the proceedings of a case, like we are initial motions, uh, right when the trial is beginning, partway through the trial, and then after the trial, after the verdict's rendered, you have to like repeatedly raise certain objections and issues in order to be able to appeal in real time. You have to, you have to raise them in real time. And if you forget to, you lose it. Uh, and, And actually there was just, I was listening to a Supreme Court argument a week or two ago and one of the justices said but was this preserved Mm. did anybody actually you might be right in what you're saying right now but nobody said it before Mm. so you can't say it it's even if it's it's intimidating correct even if it's a great argument but yes as a (coughs) second year or third year law student operating under supervision you're held to the standard of a reasonably competent attorney there's no like Easy path, you know, there's no bunny trail. So I just took like a lot of extra time and would do tons of like background research when I would do something simple like write a motion to dismiss. <laughs> something that would another, you know, a seasoned it's attorney would be just like, copy paste. Copy paste, I'm, like, I'm going to read every case <laughs> every... that's related to this. <laughs> uh, and the other one is uh, you can't, like in billing, you can't bill for that above and You can't bill correct. to make yourself competent. You can bill to like study for the, the issue. actual work, but yep. not to, yeah. Uh, so con law briefly, and then let's oh, conclude. Yes. So uh, did you learn anything interesting in con law? I gave you the heads up that it doesn't really get into the Bill of Rights, which is probably the most exciting part about the Constitution. So you looked at the first few yeah, articles. Yeah, it was like structure, structure of the Constitution. You know, uh, we talked about the doctrine of judicial review, right? Someone has to have the final say um, on questions of of constitutionality. Yeah. So for the audience was judicial review. So if there is, if there are, um, if there are competing interpretations of what the federal constitution says on, on a, on a important issue that's in the courts, um, are, do we allow those competing views to exist, to coexist? Um, or do we need to resolve that conflict? Uh, and, pretty early on in our republic the decision was uh to resolve those at the supreme court right uh there are times when we have like circuit splits where there's a big issue we're not sure right. okay you can you know interpret it differently but the supreme court has the power but the supreme court has the power not the obligation the right. but the supreme court can uniquely uh resolve questions of constitutional interpretation on non-political questions 
on non-political questions and only if it's a case or controversy. They cannot yeah. just show up and say, by the way, here's our opinion. They have That's to called have... an advisory opinion, and those are not allowed by the Supreme Great Court. Great podcast, though. It is a good podcast. And state courts can give advisory opinions. Yes, they can. Uh, and in some ways, concurrences are advisory opinions. I mean, the Supreme Court can give advisory opinions in all sorts of, like, denials of writs. And right. they can, <clears throat> the way they refuse But their actual, like, holding, their yeah. ruling has to be on a case or controversy and has to be a, a, a holding is they don't just give their opinions. So one thing that was, that was, um, meaningful to me with con law was the, uh, uh, what are the mechanisms for accountability, uh, of the federal Supreme court, right? Uh, if they're, if that, if that branch of government is, is, is trusted with the, final say on constitutional matters, how do we hold them accountable? Right. They're not elected, they're appointed. So there's a political, you know, there's political um, uh, accountability, accountability uh, but on a life scale, you know, or, or at least a presidential sure, appointment. scale. There's an appointment. Appointment, accountability. Um, there, you know, there is, uh, there is the, the fact that the Supreme Court has no enforcement capacity. They, they cannot compel anyone to do anything. Right. Uh, I guess except get out of their building or something. But uh, Are you familiar with Andrew Jackson's yes. famous uh, With What Army? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And so there is, a, there is a sensitivity that the Supreme Court has to have with, um, with basically pro, you know, making, making decisions uh, and and knowing that if if either it's the executive branch or Congress or states, if they don't comply, like there are ways that they can turn up the heat, um, but they don't. Yeah, they don't have an army. They don't right. have an enforcement arm. And so there is very there's much there's definitely a. Uh, I would think, if any branch of government is entrusted with sort of the. Uh, the it's similar to like almost like it's think of it like a, like a monarchy like the king like who keeps the king accountable obviously there's like the god keeps the king accountable argument but there's also the well if the king loses the trust of the people he's gonna have a hard time leading his hand right. it's just it's just gonna be hard and you're gonna you know it if there's a self-interest and there's like almost like the what is it the the scepter is that what it is like represents justice, like the king carries that. Sure. And that kind of represents like there is a trust to administer justice. And that's kind of what the Supreme Court holds. Um, and that's unique. That's like kind of, that's a little, that's like a little uh, less mechanical than we usually think in the States. You know what I mean? Like, sure. Anyway, I thought that was fascinating. And I think for the most part, I think the justices do a pretty good job. Um, but in terms of accountability, so it's both, there's some accountability in, yeah, the executive appoints the members of the court over time. But also, we can change all these laws. Yes. So ultimately, the Supreme Court is not making law. They're interpreting. They're just interpreting law. Yeah. And for example, there was a a ruling I did not love. But ultimately, there's a real, uh, several years ago, uh, uh, it was the ruling out of Georgia regarding Title Seven and like, same-sex attraction, transgender employees, and discrimination. Do you recall the name? 
Was it, it wasn't Bostock. Bostock. Thank okay. you. Bostock. Um, yep. Yes. Gorsuch's so, wooden analysis. That was what we talked about yes. that last episode. Yeah. But like there's a really easy remedy to Let's this. Let's go change the law. Exactly. And like I think Congress. that's actually what Gorsuch is basically challenging the American people to do is change the 1965 Civil Rights Act. Uh, and then now the Constitution's harder to amend. But yeah, a, possible. A, a, it's hard. It's still possible. It's impossibly, it's impossibly possible. I've actually been thinking one of the things I thought about during my internship was the Supreme Court ruling in Bruin a couple of years ago. The the test that Thomas laid out mm -hmm. is quite expansive and permissive of gun ownership, even by people. Text history and tradition. Right? Yeah. <clears throat> you basically have to find a historical analog for a gun regulation, which is on the whole, I think, a great thing for Second Amendment supporters. But it arguably allows a lot of felons to own guns, people that are very dangerous, like there's a the, the, possibly mentally the, ill. Um, Ramiri case? No, the um, what's, it's in it's in the court right now. Yep, Rahimi, Rahimi, Rahimi case, yeah. right? Uh, domestic abuser with a with a uh, restraining. Uh, yeah, he had a restraining restraining order. order. Yep. Um, you know, it wasn't a judicial process. It wasn't like a trial. That. Right, he didn't have representation, but he agreed to it. Yeah. But so the question though is, there a historical analog for taking someone like that's gun away? Yeah. And the answer is kind of no. And but I am wondering, I, I I suspect the court is going to slightly cabin Bruin mm. and make it a little bit more reasonable, which I'm okayish with, because there is a historical analog for basically disarming like dangerous populations of course back in the day the dangerous population were like native americans and black americans which is was very much informed by historical racism more than like the population actually being you're saying like, dangerous as criminals. in against whom was the label dangerous? well on whom was the right. label dangerous applied and but, that's, that's but you could saying. argue that the analog today is you know people who who are mentally insane or are, are felons, et cetera. And I, yes. I think the Supreme Court will probably allow something like that. But I'm also open to the court maintaining like a really expansive Bruin yes. understanding and saying, and just incentivizing us to Congress amend the, the Second Amendment. Right. Congress, the, the, the rule is clear. You write laws, we'll apply this rule. Right. And, and it could set the stage you know the for a big compromise amendment where basically people who are anti-second amendment this is a bit of a fantasy of mine it's not going to actually happen people they reasonably recognize we're not going to be able to remove the second amendment but we can cabinet by locking arms with law and order conservatives who don't want felons to have guns or people with restraining orders and so they could make like a slightly modified second amendment that allows a certain uh due process process for disarming citizens mm -hmm. i'm not sure i love that but it'd be really interesting to see that happen i just can't actually imagine it happening so most likely the court will just tweak bruin to give a little bit more explicit permission for yeah. disarming certain populations right and will <clears throat> will as a people stomach the slight constitutional tension yeah. uh and because the truth is that exists with a number of the rights like take yeah. even free speech right the First Amendment basically just allows anything, but there's been historical case law 
and partly coming from state laws pre-incorporation. So the First Amendment used to only apply to the federal government, not state governments. Now it applies to states. But then you'd bring in, so, you know, obscene speech, uh, defamatory speech, things like this can be regulated. Uh, Another con law concept that I appreciated was just a discussion around the fact that the U.S. Constitution didn't emerge from a vacuum. Right. There are there are. Read old English cases that predate yes. the Constitution, uh, and the, so there's, there's common law concepts, principles that come down. Not all of which are articulated. Like the First Amendment is a pretty clear uh, restriction on the government's, you know, uh, prohibition of the government restricting free speech. Yeah. Um, but the argument is, well, that that actually uh, lives in the context of common law. Like that's not necessarily contradictory to the common law right. of the time, but it was, it was, uh, it was edgy, but it right. wasn't contradictory. Well, and even with Second Amendment stuff, they go back to cases in like the 1500s exactly. in England. Yep. Yep. Or maybe even the 1300s. It goes way back. <clears throat> and, uh, and then, you know, the other, um, right, the, the argument of natural law, like a lot of our founding fathers were scholars on natural law. And so there were, there were realities that they, uh, arguably didn't feel compelled to articulate in words, but that framed their understanding. And so then you have like originalists. We do, okay, do we need to, when we're thinking, when we're trying to interpret interpret the constitution as an originalist, do we need to like put on our founding father hats and okay, think like a, like a, like a, you know, um, 18th century natural law scholar um it just those concepts of like all right no it's not just as simple as what does it say right <laughs> um right. originalism is is much deeper than textualism mm-hmm. and and i think we already had this conversation so we have to rehab it entirely i lean textualist for statutes and originalist for the constitution yeah i lean originalists if it's more than like a hundred years old and textualists if it's less than a hundred years but old part of what i'd say is <laughs> if it's more than a hundred years old Pass a new statute. Like, sure. Just, yeah. You, you can't just like amend the constitution. It's yes. a, it's an epic process. Whereas like, I almost feel like actually this is something I've brainstormed before. What if all statutes had sunset provisions? Yeah. You mentioned that. Yeah. Like you couldn't pass a law that lasted for more, like more than 10 years. That way it like forced you to on the whole have very few laws and laws wouldn't just like collect dust for I mean, that years. was the rationale for, uh, having to renew mil- the military budget, hundred percent. Right? That was in the Constitution. Yep, uh, it's worked. I mean, it, it's. I mean, it's now just reframed a lot as of a those government, government shutdown. shutdown things. That's are why. because of exactly. But it's it's the the political <laughs> framing um, is often. Yeah, uh, it's it it's rarely do I hear anyone talk about the fact that like, it's not a government shutdown. It's a failure to. Adopt, right. you know, it's it's a protection on, but but what that constitutional and, provision does is it requires us to think about money in D.C. Right. at least once a year, even thing. if it goes through, right? We have to we have to chew and on it. And similarly, even if we That's renewed all the statutes every ten years, it kind of forces you to realize there's a lot of statutes. Frankly, we're AI could do it probably. Just yeah. <laughs> uh, so like, I like that idea of sunsetting. That's part of why I lean textualist on statutes. Like, you know, if it uses verbiage that only somebody a hundred years ago knew, yeah. What's up? Let's pass a new law yeah. <laughs> that, and have, me, have it say what you mean. Yeah. Uh, 
the last con law idea that I'll bring up is the idea of, of government sovereignty, but like specifically state sovereignty. Mm. Uh, and it's just something I hadn't thought about too, too much beforehand, right? Like the 11th Amendment and uh, the, the sort of the, the story behind that. This is, one of, this is one of those ideas where like that was inter- arguably internalized in founding fathers work but they didn't explicitly state it uh but there was right the idea of state sovereignty being uh the state cannot be sued by uh isn't subject to lawsuit um by someone who's by the federal government or a citizen of another state uh, unless they allow it or waive their right right um and how that's been interpreted over the years uh it's just a, it's, a, it's a concept that is so again it's 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 another one of those like we we adopted this from the old world like the idea of a sovereign king like we had to sort of break up that puzzle and okay where do we put those pieces of sovereignty right. and how do they interact we have a federal government and then we have the states and then but, well it's even like we still have a something akin to a sheets which is like the government gets your property if ultimately it doesn't have anywhere to go. Right. Uh, it used to just go to the king. And like now there is a state, claim. It's like an underlying claim to everything. Yep. <laughs> uh, and we're okay with that. Obviously, it's calibrated. And important to note, in our context, those are the states, not the United States. Yeah. The, the states, well, I mean, the U.S. is also sovereign. Right. But, but the federal government doesn't have sovereignty. Yes. Whereas states actually have this like general sovereignty that's different. Yep. Yep. So uh, another, so my last takeaway with con law was if you want to get something done, do it at the state level. What's up? That's, that's kind of what I took away. I mean, local, but like if you want right. to, if you want to change your world, states have a lot work of on the state. Uh, and, and the, and SCOTUS has respected that. Mm-hmm. Uh, almost slightly scarily sometimes but yeah states are powerful well it's it's a yeah it's a it's a respect that is paired with a responsibility and yep. it's our duty to steward that well yeah as citizens so engage your states awesome yo thanks for chatting thanks jay uh sorry my voice has been wet. yeah drink some tea rest your voice for exactly. the next couple days uh cool, cool. peace peace